My name is Aaron Sharma, and I am your host and advocate for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, all things mental health and addiction. Beneath the Mass platform is here to demystify the stigma surrounding mental health, sexual abuse, and addiction. The stories and conversations may convey graphic and jarring realities. BTM refuses to turn the other way and instead chooses to tackle this stigma head-on. Please note that this podcast is not a replacement for mental health therapy. Please consult with your local mental health counseling for guidance on situations specific to you. And please note that what you're about to hear is extremely sensitive and triggering. Welcome to part two of my road to recovery. In this episode, I'll be putting my heart and soul into discussing a single form of therapy that has been largely responsible towards propelling me to stability. This episode is a continuation to BTM's previous episode, Part 1. There is no understanding Part 2 without Part 1. On the previous episode, I spoke of getting zoned out during movies, and how I would have to recollect myself as soon as I would snap out of it. I spoke of how I would grab the keys in the middle of the night, and find myself in high-risk areas such as train tracks and bridges. I spoke of a moment where I zoned out only five feet from a train that was passing me by. When I look back at these moments when I was ready to call it quits during my bout with mental health issues... I can't help but think of the moments as a teenager where I would intentionally put myself through situations that increase the likelihood of my own death. I can't help but think of the moments as a teenager where I would scream (laughs) and pray out to God to take my life. I can't help but think about all the moments as a young adolescent when I tried to take my own life. As all of you know, I started using drugs and alcohol as a young teenager. And as my young years went on, the more I used, the more reckless I became, the more angrier I became, the more guarded I became, the more lonely I became. I didn't trust anyone. In hindsight, how could I have trusted anyone? Would you have? After years of witnessing domestic violence issues, Would you have? How could I not be reckless or angry after years of having been sexually abused by my perpetrator? Would you have? As I think of these moments, moments while driving 150 kilometers an hour, 170 kilometers an hour, 200 kilometers an hour. I walked out of that vehicle without a single scratch. Moments where I would leave my residence in the middle of the night, 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. and walk sometimes 
intoxicated, sometimes sober, over the high-risk areas such as parks and alleys, through large groups, in hopes to get mauled and or attacked. I never got mauled. Though I still live with the scar on my face caused by the first group. Although I still live with the cut on my neck caused by the second group. Moments where I would share bills and snort with high-risk individuals. Moments where I would intentionally consume as much alcohol, black out, and wake in places with no recollection. Sometimes I would wake outside, arms bloodied and abrased. And when things got really bad, moments where I would smoke random cigarette butts from random people, from public ashtrays, and sometimes from off the ground, all in hopes to get sick, all in hopes to catch a disease. And when these high-risk exposures were not working, when I was not getting my way indirectly with the angel of death, when death was not coming for me, moments where I would punch out fences, glass, tiles, hands bloodied, just to force the hands of death. A moment where I would Cut after cut after cut after cut. 24 cuts. A reminder I live with every single day. Just to force the hands of death. A moment where I would consume a 60 ouncer and over a dozen over-the-counter pills just to force the hands of death. I must have told a friend because next thing I know, a friend and his family are rushing me to the hospital. Relatives called, no one came. No one waiting for me as I walked out that hospital alive. After that moment, after leaving the hospital, I truly felt alone. Although I'm grateful for having friends who took care of me during that dark time in my life, I had no one reliable in my life to show me love, affection, support, and no one to scold me for my actions. My long-term relationship had just ended with me being cheated on at the time. God didn't want me, and even the angel of death paid no attention to me. That was one of my lowest points as a teenager. Fast forward 16 years after walking out that hospital as a 17-year-old. As described in part one, here I was as an adult, standing five feet before a moving train and watching it go by. Just empty, emotionless, lifeless, and numb. 
Fear usually accompanied my suicidal tendencies as a teenager. However, this time as an adult, there was not a single ounce of fear coursing through my veins. No contemplation of the past, present, and future. No second thought for the people that truly mattered, my wife and kids. I then snapped out of it. But I was ready to let go. And I thought to wait for the next train to do the unthinkable. But through some divine miracle, through some level of detached out-of-body awareness, through some level of self-reflection and objectivity, I knew that there had to be a reason why I was still here. After all the hardships and life's battles, I was still here. It was not that God did not want me. It was simply that it was not my time. It was not my time as a teenager, and it was sure as hell not my time now. I knew firsthand what it was like to grow up with the absence of my father's love. How could I put an innocent little one-year-old boy through the same? How could I leave a woman to suffer in agony, to grieve for her husband? How? This wasn't about my wife or child anymore. I just simply could not do that to someone especially to a young and helpless child. It wasn't right to destroy the lives of people directly as a result of my actions. I would be no different than my abuser, no different than my father. That is what I chose to believe anyways. And that's when I broke through. That is when I saw a glimpse of light through all the darkness. Even though I couldn't feel my wife and child's love, I knew that I was meant to stay. I chose not to succumb to my darkness. I was able to find it within myself to fight. And I walked away from those tracks vowing to never return until I was in a good place mentally. As discussed in part one, my wife would call me frantically about my whereabouts soon after. Although I recognized that I had a problem, it was through my conversation with my wife I realized that I really needed help. So, I started my road to recovery and met an angel, a clinical counselor by the name of Mary. And although I was not going out in the middle of the night anymore, my thoughts of self-harm were now amplified. Mary would put me on suicide watch. And as hard as it was, I committed to express myself, my thoughts of self-harm to Mary. And it got easier. Six months later, I was referred to the depression care program where I met another angel, clinical counselor Kaldeep. Kaldeep introduced me to cognitive behavior therapy and the Adlerian task model. And although I committed myself to these forms of therapy, I was also being tested every time I walked away from Kaldeep's establishment. I learned of other victims by the same perpetrator. I started revealing my story to specific family members to gain support. And unfortunately, there was a death in the family due to suicide. Triggers after triggers. All of which that took immense levels of emotion and energy out of me. 
that was sending me on a roller coaster of mixed emotions and thoughts. Why was this happening to me again? I asked Kuldeep. Why would I jump back and forth between low and high points more frequently in my life with very little in between? Why did it feel like that my in-breath was longer than my out-breath? Why did I feel trapped more often in my life than free? Why was I spending more time in states where I was unable to breathe, unable to remain stable, unable to control my thoughts? The best way to describe it, ladies and gentlemen, is that by this point in my recovery with Kaldeep, considering the totality of everything I had endured leading up to this point, it truly felt like that in my mind, two versions of me were trapped in a barred cage in the middle of a busy intersection with one part of me screaming and running around in hyperspeed and the other part of me standing still, standing frozen, holding the bars and looking out and watching the people pass me by, watching the cars pass me by, watching the world pass me by. Why is it that every time I achieve something as a child, teenager and adult, this window of stability would not last very long? And before you know it, I was spiral between high and low points again. Why did the absence of this in-between cause me to feel abnormal compared to everyone else? Why was I going off the rails between these high and low points while everyone else around me was remaining stable? Why? 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 I asked Kaldeep. I would share my suicidal tendencies as a teenager with her, share my suicidal tendencies prior to seeing Mary with her, and share my thoughts of self-harm that I was experiencing at the time with her. And Kaldeep would introduce me to another form of therapy that would alter the course of my recovery, a form of therapy that will stick with me until this very day as I speak before you. The Window of Tolerance Therapy. Kaldeep instructed that I apply the Window of Tolerance Therapy. She handed me a piece of document with text on each side. She asked that I read the front first. I noticed three sections. The top section read hyperarousal zone, sympathetic flight or flight response. And it described this zone as experiencing a flooded increase in sensations, emotional reactivity, hypervigilance, intrusive imagery and flashbacks, and disorganized cognitive processing. 
The bottom section read hypoarousal zone, dorsal vagal immobilization response. And it described this zone as experiencing relative absence of sensation, numbing of emotions, disabled cognitive processing, and reduced physical movement. At this point, I was taken back by what I was reading. These zones were literally describing the volatility of my personality that I had been experiencing most of my life. And then, as I continued to look at this piece of paper in front of me, in between the hyper and hypo arousal zones, I noticed the window of tolerance optimal arousal zone, ventral vagal social engagement response. And it described this zone as experiencing a state where emotions can be tolerated and information integrated. Kaldeep started connecting the dots and started to explain to me why she thought I was jumping between low and high points with no in-between. She asked that I turn over the document and read the passage word for word. It read, quote, One of the primary jobs of the cortex is attachment. In ancient time, membership in a band was critical for survival. Exile was a death sentence. Today, feeling understood, valued, and cherished may not be a life and death matter, but it certainly affects one's happiness, health, and effectiveness. If you want to nurture this part of the brain, get a sense of feeling cared about. Imagine the presence of someone you know who wishes you well. Savor this experience and really take it in. Next, get a sense of your own caring nature. Experience yourself as being warm and caring, friendly and encouraging towards this person. Now imagine a caring committee which can include imaginary figures or real people such as teachers, parents and friends. Imagine your caring committee to soothe the very young part of you praising and delighting in the older parts of you, hugging those longing parts in you. Then, your inner monkey will receive what it's always wanted. Recognition, inclusion, respect, and love. End quote. I immediately burst into tears. Because what dawned on me was that I had only been semi-socialized. Filled with trauma and pain as a young child and young teenager, and filled with substance and blackouts as an older teenager and young adult. Even until this day, my memories as an adolescent and young adult is unclear. The only time I felt consciously normal was after I sobered at 25 years old. And even after I sobered, I never thought for one second that the past and my unattended trauma would invade my life like a storm one day. I had locked up that traumatic part of me a very long time ago and threw away the key. And I only wish that I had subjected myself to some form of healing during the initial stages of my sobriety. For someone to tell me 
that keeping everything locked up in Pandora's box was not sustainable long term. So here I was, six years sober, and my unattended trauma hit me like a storm and invaded all aspects of my life. And I could not take it anymore. And here I was with Kaldeep who was explaining to me that the reason for me feeling abnormal for a very long time was because I had never felt understood, valued, cherished, cared about, recognized, included, respected, and loved. These are the building blocks to the development of one's window of tolerance that I hardly experienced. It was absence of this in between, the absence of this space, the window of tolerance that caused me to feel abnormal compared to everyone else. And now, ladies and gentlemen, after realizing this, something deep in me had gone off. Every morning moving forward upon rising, I would start to read this passage. And as directed by this passage, I started to think about all those people who wished me well. Initially, my committee was made up of just my wife and child. But then this committee started to grow as I committed myself to therapy. This committee of supporters grew with every feat. The fake supporters naturally weeded themselves out. Some supporters fell with the occasion and never looked back, which I admit was a devastating blow that took me over a dozen sessions to bounce back from. And some supporters rose with the occasion and are day one with me until this very day. Today, this committee is made up of the dead, the living, survivors, counselors, doctors, mentors, influencers, leaders, the child version of me who was once abused and taken advantage of, the adolescent version of me who was once lost, the adult version of me who found his way, versions of me who are now protected and safe by this higher vibrating version of myself today, by this human being talking before you today with God standing behind him as his army. This therapy has given me the gift of affirmation by affirming to myself that I am valued, cherished, and loved, has created a self-love for myself and has given me great joy and a newfound appreciation for life. This therapy has given me the gift of emotional intelligence. And this emotional self-awareness creates foresight of environments and people I must stay away from to avoid a dip into the hyper-arousal or hyper-arousal zones. And as I apply this way of living, my window of tolerance gets larger and my dips get smaller. There was a time when after a triggering event, my dips would last one to three months. Today, I'm bouncing back within hours. And that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Before I go, I wanted to leave you with this. Fast forward a totality of 27 years to present day since being sexually abused for the first time at 7 years of age. Having lived through childhood sexual abuse into my young adolescence. Having lived through heartache. Having lived through grief. Having lived through many attempts of self-harm. Having lived through substance addiction. Having lived through a bout with mental health issues. 
having lived through the emotional facets that these major issues in my life created such as fear, confusion, sadness, hopelessness, self-sabotage, anger, hate, loneliness, and so much more. Today, I am disease-free and healthy. I am absolutely in love with life. I am in love with myself. I am alive. And here telling you my story. If any one of you listeners are struggling, I want you to know that if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, please keep walking. You may question the point in walking in absence of the light. You may question your purpose. You may question your will to fight. You will fall. And when you do, you'll be presented with a choice. As hard as life may be, you will always have a choice. The choice to succumb to the darkness or to get back up. Because you see, we look out into the horizon for the flicker of that light, for a flicker of that hope. And when we can't see it, we continue to fall. Instead, you must look deep within because the flicker is you. You are the light. You are the light. Stay tuned to part three where I discuss the remainder of the steps I took towards my stability. And now that I have found stability, the steps I commit on a daily basis to remain stable. A spiritual journey that describes the supernatural experience behind Kuldeep's next recommendation that coincidentally reunites me with Mary. The significance of being validated by men in my family. The life-changing experience of all-male group therapy and the profound feeling of no longer feeling alone as a male sexual abuse survivor. Taking my life back, which included reporting to the authorities, sharing my story to the world, and more. Until then, follow Beneath the Mask Podcast on Instagram at handle Beneath the Mask Podcast. And for anyone who is looking to be heard on the BTM platform, share your story today at BeneathTheMaskPodcast.com. I'll see you in the next one, my people. Take care.